your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Solom. All right, welcome to Friday of Lacrosse Talk PM. I'm Rick Solom, like that guy just said on the phone with me for the hour, UW Lacrosse political science professor, Dr. Anthony Chagoski, and we're just going to grill you today, Chagoski, on the uh, Bitcoin. Let's talk about Bitcoin. What, everything <laughs> you know on Bitcoin, uh, you got one minute. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't even know where I would begin on this <laughs> cryptocurrency stuff, Rick. Like, that's, that's a stumper for me. Yeah, we've tried to have that conversation in the past, and uh, I think we have a guy called Bitcoin Dave, who we just, <laughs> we just gave him that name because he was the only person that called that had any kind of, you, you know, just it's where he, oh, yeah, Dave, you sound like, you, you know what, we're going to call you Bitcoin Dave because you sound like you know what you're talking about, even though, like, he probably knows about as much as, you know, any of the rest of us, but um, not really sure why I went down the Bitcoin alley. But uh, the the GameStop and then the Bitcoin, it's all it's all kind of interesting, um, and just stuff that you know those other people that with uh, money to to burn and uh, they they get to play with that stuff. Meanwhile, the peasants down here, we've got to we've got to worry about whether or not the uh, Wisconsin state government you know passes a bill because it's still April sixteenth. We're still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 are Rick, uh, and you know they're going to be in session next week. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I, if you were a betting man, if you had Bitcoin to to bet, uh, would you bet <laughs> that Evers' budget gets passed first, or something? The the Wisconsin legislature gets something to Evers' desk that he would sign. Where would you go there? Well. Evers' budget address is next Tuesday, so he will lay out his budget proposal next week, and then it does really kick into motion in terms of uh, the budget working its way through the Joint Finance Committee of the Wisconsin State Legislature, ultimately making its way to both chambers, and Evers does have the line item veto if he wants to take certain elements out of the proposal that ultimately reaches his desk. So I don't know exactly what the timetable looks like for this upcoming budget process, but it does really kick off in earnest next Tuesday. And we already have a few details about Evers' budget proposal. I think the splashy one was certainly his proposal to legalize recreational and medical marijuana. And then today we saw this proposal that will be part of his budget release that is uh, that has to do with the sales tax. And right now we have a 5.5% sales tax, 5% going to the state, and counties imposing 0.5% of that. Evers' proposal is to allow the rate to go up to 6.5% should voters in particular areas approve of that. So uh, we're, we've seen some proposals related to sales tax and, and marijuana come out already about Evers' budget, and we'll just have to wait to see what comes next. I think the legislature is going to pretty much start from scratch, but Evers at least has the first move in terms of getting his budget proposal out there. Yeah, and, and now you talk, Evers has a line item veto. The Republicans, when they get the budget, do they have kind of their own veto? Because they'll just go, marijuana, get rid of that. Oh, Medicaid, get rid of that. Like, that's what will happen, right? Yeah, I think Evers is sort of the first mover and the last mover here. And the legislature does everything in between. 
So Evers can sort of set the terms of the conversation. He can at least attempt to do so through the proposals he makes in his initial budget proposal. And then he can make those line item vetoes at the end of the process, signing in the signing the bill into law, but taking out specific lines in the budget that he disapproves of. And it's fair to say that Wisconsin's governors have a very powerful line item veto. In fact, uh, one of the most powerful in the country. So no doubt he's going to use the line item veto. Republicans are going to write and pass a budget that is designed to be line item veto proof, that is designed to prevent the line item veto from being used by Tony Evers to a great degree. But I'm sure that Tony Evers is going to find ways to make creative uses of that veto. And that's pretty much the name of the game for anyone using the line item veto. Try to figure out how to make as creative use of that line item veto as possible to get your priorities enacted into law. What are the, the do uh, Evers or the Republicans, do they just try to sneak in wording inside a line that, that they, you know, we want to... We want to open up churches, so we're going to add that to the middle of this line. We know we, we both agree on this part, but we're going to add the opening up churches during a pandemic into the middle here, and maybe Evers, Evers will miss that part. <laughs> Absolutely, Rick. I mean, the Republican legislature is well aware of Tony Evers' very powerful line at Mbito, and they tried with mixed success in the last budget cycle to pass a budget that would be difficult for Evers to use the line item veto on. Nevertheless, Veters did make Evers did make substantial use of the line item veto. So I have no doubt that Evers is going to make substantial use of it again because vetoing the entire thing and restarting the process or kicking it back to the legislature is not something that I think anyone wants. Um, but Evers can sort of pick and choose to a certain extent, what he wants to see enacted into law. It's a very powerful tool, and not all governors have it. So it's wise of him to make the best use of it possible just for his strategic advantage. Yeah, and, and Republicans don't like this, right, the, the line out of veto. They, they've argued against this probably in just the last two years, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, Rick, you know, it totally depends on if your party has the governor's office, right? Like, I mean, if, oh, that's Republicans, what I was at. if Republicans had the governor's office under their control and the Democrats had control of the legislature, you would hear Republicans really going to bat for the line item veto, just like how you're hearing Democrats going to bat for the right. line item veto now. And it just, I think it reflects how people do not have a principled position on this kind of stuff. It's just a matter of like, what does, what, what advantage is my favorite political party at this particular moment in time? Does the line item veto help or hurt my party? And that'll shape my position on it. So I don't think really anyone has a principled position on the line item veto. I think it just totally depends on like, hey, who's, which party is the governor and which party is the state legislature? And that's pretty much what it seems to come down to. Yeah, because if, if the Republicans wanted to get rid of the line item veto, they could have created some legislation while Scott Walker held office for all those years and, and gotten rid of it, right? Like, why wouldn't they, they, they do that? We could do this with gerrymandering too, right? Like before 2010, when didn't Democrats hold the entire state government and they could have, you know, done something uh, not... Uh, bipartisan or not nonpartisan with gerrymandering where where the government has little to do with how the political maps are drawn um we just want to point fingers but at, at some point it'd be nice if uh, you know one of the parties took the lead 
Oh, exactly, Rick. I mean, and this is the thing, right? Parties are looking out for their short-term political gain, and they're not really thinking long-term. So, sure, the Republicans could have reformed the veto under Scott Walker, but that would not have been to their short-term political advantage. And now they can complain about the line-item veto, but their complaints are obviously motivated by the fact that it's a Democratic governor as opposed to a Republican governor. And the gerrymandering example works for that as well, right? I mean, it's just totally motivated by short-term political gain. Republicans would be all in favor of reforming the redistricting process if Democrats had control over it. And it would probably be different if the Democrats did have control over the redistricting process, right? And and so, you know, people, w- w- again, what I say is that I really doubt people have principal firm stances on this type of stuff. I just really, really doubt it. And I just think that they look out for whatever is convenient for them politically at a particular moment in time. Yeah, definitely. Because what's convenient for everybody right now is for the government not to give each other any wins and for us to sit here for 10 months during a pandemic and see our government do literally nothing uh, except try to repeal a mask mandate and then uh, and then put it back in order. Uh, that's UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Jagoski. If you got questions, 608-785-7914. We can go anywhere. We can talk impeachment. We can talk um, Bitcoin. Let's If you got any good Bitcoin, <laughs> we, we could talk uh, the Wisconsin DNR sturgeon caviar uh, scandal. <laughs> I guess we're stealing caviar out of sturgeon. I don't. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, but we'll be back. Brad's got to do the news. Uh, and just we'll be back in a minute. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM six zero eight seven eight five seven nine one four is the talking text line. We're talking about uh, the Governor Evers' budget. We're talking. We could talk impeachment, uh, the sturgeon caviar scandal in Wisconsin. UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Tregoski is on. We're going to subject him to air for Sparta. Go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, the impeachment is over, you know. Uh, Trump wins and Dems lose. And then in 2024, the ordinary man will uh, run against Cammy and she'll get, get her ass kicked unless they have, still have bell harvesting. And Ron Johnson will win the governorship if he decides to retire. And you guys lose. Who's you Enough guys? Nothing enough. You guys are phonies, period. Liberal phonies. You and your guest. Thanks. You got to wait. Hey, Tregoski, what you got to do is you got to wait for the landline hang up. So you just <laughs> you got to wait for that. Um, okay. I don't I, Whatever. I guess uh, Eric's doing his own show. <laughs> so, yeah. which is fine. It's the Eric from Sparta show. I mean, he, uh, Ron Johnson's going to run for governor if he doesn't retire, and uh, I, I feel like Ron Johnson's probably backed himself into a corner where that wouldn't be the greatest idea. But whatever, I don't want to even. I don't even want to go that. We can do that. We tried to do the Ron Kind's going to retire show, and Ron Kind wasn't into it. So, um, and that's that's about as far away as the Ron Johnson thing, right? Yeah, it is, and. In fact, Rick, it really does hinge on redistricting. So much, ha- so much is at stake in this next round of redistricting. And we can't do that, Tregoski. That- we can't talk about gerrymandering, redistricting. Remember, I, I made a rule. We're not going to do that till <laughs> it's February now. What April or May? When can we start that conversation? Good, yes, good news. We're still a couple months away from that discussion. Okay, we'll just because I, I I I like talking about it, and it's very hypocritical, like what Democrats did before and what Republicans are doing. And um, but we we can just go down. I mean, there's the like the stuff that we're doing right now is 
I mean, we could. I could just rail on April sixteenth some more. You know, like we could. Like that should be the the focus. The idea that our state government hasn't passed a bill that Evers has signed since April sixteenth. The only thing that they have done is repeal a mask mandate months after the mask mandate was in. You know, they could have repealed it at any point in time. And then they they preach that no, we're not repealing the mask mandate. We're repealing the ability of Governor Evers to uh, have a mask mandate. We're all for masks. Then it's like, well, if you're all for masks, then just uh, put your own legislation in for a mask mandate. Assembly signs it. Senate signs it. Evers signs it. We could say, hey, our state government has done something for the first time since April 16th. They put in a mask mandate. But we we don't want to do that. Why is that? Well, it's, it's actually funny that you bring up the mask mandate, Rick, because the lobbying has been so overwhelmingly in favor of the mask mandate. And I was having a chat with a lobbyist who represents a number of uh, small businesses. And he was saying that his clients actually like love the mask mandate because it makes them request and require that customers wear a mask. And it doesn't make them the bad guy in exactly. the whole interaction. It says, hey, you know, uh, we're just asking you to wear a mask, uh, not because we're the bad guy, but because we're just following the statewide order. Yeah. So don't blame us. And so his clients actually love the mask mandate. And so it doesn't, I mean, I think it's telling that a lot of businesses were not in favor of getting rid of the mask mandate. Yeah, I know a lot of people that work in retail and I hear a lot of stories like, hey, we had this guy come in and he want to wear a mask. And then, you know, he side saddles the, the person at the front door handing them a mask and he grabs it and pretends to put it on. And you see him in the store later and then it's a fight inside the store. Hey, can you leave? You're not going to wear a mask and get out. Can you please leave? And. Uh, you know, then the, 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 that guy becomes a constitutional expert and a First Amendment rights expert or something. And uh, But, yeah, like at least when you have a mask mandate opposed by the state, you can go, if you hate Governor Evers, you could say, hey, it's just Governor Evers. The stupid Democrats are making us wear masks, so just please put one on. I don't like it either. Or you could say, oh, the stupid government, if you don't want to point to Evers, you just want to point to government in general. Stupid government's making us do this, but instead now it's like, hey, no, well, not now, but for that one hour there was no mask mandate. You see how all the people flood the stores. I couldn't believe the masses that went to the stores for that hour when there was no mask mandate. Um, But, like, yeah, businesses are like, I'm sorry, it's still our store policy. We're still a business. We have our own rules. Um, please put your pants and your mask on because those are both required while you're in our store. Um, we'll we'll let you let you slide on sandals and socks. It's fine. <laughs> hey, Rick, there's nothing in the Constitution that says I have to wear pants or a mask when I go in a store. Yeah, I, I did see you walk into Target the other day. I thought I was going <laughs> to say hi to you. You didn't have pants on, so I didn't want to talk to you, Chagoski. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> well, I, it is just so telling the lack of any lobbying behind getting rid of the mask mandate. This just seems to be something that came up more or less just among the Republicans because they wanted to, you know, kind of stick it to Governor Evers and felt like, you know, they did have sort of a constitutional or legal-based argument. But, I mean, just in terms of the an outpouring of support for repealing the mask mandate, like, there was none of that. The most recent data that we have is from... October, the Marquette Law Poll, which had 70% of people in favor of a mask mandate. So politically, it's just a curious move by the Republicans. Ultimately, though, as you said, it uh, was put back into place by Governor Evers, and we're just waiting for the Wisconsin State Supreme Court to weigh in on it at, at this point. I think that's kind of the next shoe to drop in this whole ordeal. 
Okay, so Tom texted in. We were talking about, I think we were talking about, Eric brought up Ron Johnson and we uh, just just running for whatever position. Just in general, though, Tom said, how about this, that no government official may be older than the age of retirement. How about that? <laughs> if, uh, if Man, that would clean up the, the entire, the, 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 I, I feel like we wouldn't have a government at that point. Well, well, think about it. I mean, you have Joe Biden, who is 78, the oldest president to ever be in office. You have Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, two key figures in the House and Senate, who are both in their 80s. Chuck Schumer is not exactly young either. So, and, you know, you look at some of these senators, like Chuck Grassley's in his late 80s. Then he's not the only senator who's in his 80s. You have one senator who's almost to her 90s. So, yeah, like this is, uh, some people call it, you know, say say that it's sort of like a gentle or something to make up a totally new word. Um, it's totally out of whack, right? I mean, the age distribution of government compared to the age distribution of the population, not just that government skews older, but that elected officials skew way older in some cases than the overall American public. Yeah, and then they're trying to Twitter, and it's just the worst. They, they don't know how to Twitter. They don't know how to do the Facebook um, and you have to be what thirty five to be president. That's no, is it thirty five or thirty? Yeah, thirty five. Okay, so I mean, and then we, did we figure out uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez? She can't run twenty twenty four. She can, right? She's in. <laughs> I have no idea when AOC. Well, that's after she primaries Chuck Schumer, I think, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, Chuck Grassley's uh, eighty seven, by the way, and he's going to turn eighty eight in September. So I guess that's a ways off, but. Uh, just so just so we're aware, I heard Chuck Grassley talking uh, on the floor somewhere about ethanol versus gasoline, and everyone was like, hey, hey, I thought it was British Parliament for a minute. I was like, what's going on? They were all cheering Chuck Grassley. Chuck Grassley was incoherent and babbling like he he, did, he couldn't put his he sounds like Rick on the radio. But uh, but man, they were <laughs> cheering for him and like, yeah, go Chuck. You know, so it was kind of funny to see that. I, I, do I have that right? British Parliament. It's, I mean, one of those over there. Uh, governments, they, they're always screaming and yelling at each other. It's great. Oh, yeah, where they yell and scream at each other. And, and we're still waiting to hear if Chuck Grassley is going to run for re-election. And, hey, we'll see if he wants to serve into his 90s. Yeah, um, libertarian guys already triggered that I mentioned AOC as president. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> you can't take it. You can't take it. Um, okay, I, I want to do this real quick right before we get to Scott's comment, which is Dragoski's favorite. But we have a school board superintendent, superintendent race in the state of Wisconsin. Um, there's a story today that one of the, the, the candidates who says or, or who we assume is a Democrat uh, is being backed by Republicans. So the school superintendent race has uh, gone into the weeds of being a partisan race. And maybe I'm just naive to think it wasn't. Um why is this an elected position? Like nobody, nobody knows anything about what a school superintendent does, except maybe pe- people involved with high schools and middle schools and and all that. And and nobody is going to go and 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 read up on seven candidates in a primary where we, this really should just be candidates just be like uh like the egg secretary and stuff like that, where the governor appoints it and then the, our Wisconsin state legislature just doesn't confirm them for two years. Well, that's exactly right, Rick. I mean, this is a super weird position, the Wisconsin State Superintendent of Education. It's a super weird position for a couple reasons. First, as you noted, it is elected as opposed to being appointed by the governor. And secondly, we don't have a state board of education. We just have like this one person. 
And as you noted, Rick, it's a nonpartisan election. And, you know, nowadays we're so used to fitting politics within sort of the box of Democrat versus Republican, trying to understand politics that way. And that's not easy to do when you have seven candidates and no party label next to them on the ballot. And, you know, you sort of guess who's a Republican or a Democrat, but maybe the candidates don't want to reveal that. And so that confuses the voters. And ultimately, you have this election with seven people running for state superintendent of education. The top two will advance to the election in April. And you have the top two candidates being determined by an electorate that may not really know much about these candidates, certainly doesn't have the political party label to use, and it's going to be a really low voter turnout election, like really low. So it just doesn't seem like a great system to me at all. Okay, r- real quick, just a, a conspiracy, not a conspiracy, but theory I have. Uh, Troy Gunnerson has uh, got some West Salem affiliation. I think he was the superintendent there. Um, he's one of the seven candidates running. Lacrosse is a fairly large population. Uh, they have a mayor race, right? Like the city of Lacrosse is a mayor race, so maybe the turnout might be better with ten candidates running for mayor. Maybe a lot of people this time around. It was only seventeen percent the last time we had eleven candidates running, but maybe this time around we'll have a lot of people turn out to vote for our, our in our primary for mayor, and they'll be like, "Oh, Troy Gunderson, West Salem. I'm going to vote for him. He's from here. I know nothing about school superintendent, but hey, at least this guy's from here." And therefore, that'll boost his profile a little bit, and maybe he slides into one of those top two candidates. It's entirely possible. I mean, you'll see lacrosse having low voter turnout, but higher voter turnout than some other places. And it's entirely possible that that will help Troy Gunderson. All told, this is going to be a really, really low voter turnout election. And with seven candidates dividing up a small number of votes, it could be decided by a few thousand votes here or there, maybe even a few hundred votes. So that could really matter at the margins. So uh, it's certainly something I'm paying attention to. Like, what will voter turnout be in La Crosse compared to elsewhere in Wisconsin? And what will the implications of that be, if if any, for this state superintendent race? Yeah, I used to come up with, uh, you know, conspiracies or or theories about uh, why Giannis is never getting charge calls or never gets called for traveling on the Bucks. Um, Now, because we're political junkies, Tregoski, now I'm coming up with school (laughs) superintendent uh, uh, theories. Um, All right, I'm going to put you on hold so you can listen to uh, Scott's comment. That's coming up. And then Brad doing the news. We'll be back after this. I'm with him. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line. UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Tregoski is on with me. We were talking about really uh, how our government's old. Tom sent in a funny text that said maybe we should just when people are of retirement age, they don't get to run for government anymore. So there'd be like a 30-year window for president, 35 years old to 65 maybe. Um, but but uh, another guy, Nate, texted in. Nathan texted in and said, I knew Senator Grassley back when he first ran. He's over the hill a long way from his youth. Yeah, he's 87, Nate, and he hasn't run since 1950 when he was part of the high school track team in Iowa, I feel like. I think uh, Chuck Grassley, I, I feel like if he ran now, he would just fall over. <laughs> oh, did he mean some other kind of run? Oh, he meant run for office. My bad. <laughs> this is a somewhat delicate issue, Rick, because obviously we don't want to discriminate against people due to their age. And we know that age discrimination in some areas is a very serious issue. 
On the other hand, should an 87-year-old be a United States senator? It seems like quite a different question to me. So I think there's kind of a line that we have to walk here. But at, at some point, at, at, you know, when should you just bow out and let someone else take the role? Another theory. Here we go. It's um, we're gonna. It's gonna be a half baked idea. We're doing it on the fly. We, we talk about gerrymandering. Uh, we just we, we briefly discussed. You know, Democrats held all the state offices uh, in Wisconsin. What before two thousand ten or something like that. Yeah. And they could have done something about gerrymandering, right? They could have made some kind of special. They could have did the Iowa model then. Um, and then Republicans, now we bitch because Republicans aren't doing it. And, you know, of course they're not because they're now they're never going to lose any of their their majorities. Um, what what else did we just do that that with with uh, the idea that the we expect we expect the government to, you know, if they hold. Oh, right now, the the veto, the veto pen, right? Like Evers and Republicans yep. could kind of come together in the middle and go, hey, you know what? I'm willing to relinquish this power. But uh, Evers could just point to, hey, Scott Walker and you guys held office this whole time. You could have got rid of the veto pen at any point in time. So why would we do that? Um, re- uh, Democrats hold all the offices federally right now, right? So could Joe Biden or uh, the Senate or the House create some kind of legislation that, that would, you know, uh, we talk about competence. Uh, we we want our government officials to be somewhat competent. We're 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 mad about that Taylor Green lady and her conspiracy theories, right? Uh, maybe maybe we put in some uh, maybe some drug tests, uh, some physical challenges, maybe some civics lessons. Maybe that maybe anyone who runs for office federally has to pass some kind of like a couple of tests before they they get to run. How about that? Is that too too uh, too? If Democrats hold all the offices, they want to hold the, the they want to prop up our elected officials as being competent. Well, they'll put some tests in for them. Yeah, Rick. Well, the Democrats have proposed a bill that would make some pretty dramatic changes to our elections laws. The problem for them is that they would need ten Republican senators to support this because it would be subject to the filibuster and that 60-vote threshold where the Democrats only have 50. So they would need 10 Republican senators to join with them, and that may not be possible. The House and Senate can set their own rules for the conduct of their members, and the Constitution does lay out some criteria for like the qualifications for being a member of Congress. But it is difficult, right? And we've seen that become more of an issue in terms of how do the how does the House of Representatives police the behavior of its members? Do you rely on the political party to do that? Or is this something that the entire chamber has to vote on? That's exactly what was the case with the Congresswoman from Georgia, where the Republican Party declined to strip her from her committee posts. And so the House as a whole took an action to do just that. Um, yeah, I just it just seems like uh, it, well, you couldn't get ten you couldn't get ten senators to vote for something like hey, we want competent people running our government. Uh, oh, geez, Republicans in the Senate be like, oh no way, I don't want to sign that bill. That's a poison pill for me. I don't know. It seems pretty <laughs> ridiculous. I feel like everyone could be on board with oh yeah, we're gonna drug test our government officials because they all want to drug test us to get food stamps and whatnot. So uh, you know why not flip it back around? I know uh, one of the senators in Wisconsin actually talked about doing that drug testing uh, our, our elected officials uh, if they want to drug test people on food stamps. But yeah, why not? Like who do we care if, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden's drug tested? Sure. Go, go for it. I would love to, to see the results. 
Well, a lot of blue-collar people do get drug tested. A lot of people in kind of low-wage jobs do have to get drug tested. So, I mean, you do kind of wonder, right? Like, why do some people get subjected to that and not others? Yeah, every every week, drug test. Every week. Why not? They got money to burn. We might as well burn it drug testing them. Uh, 608-785-7914 is the talk at text line. Eric's just going to – oh, Eric was waiting on hold. This is number three now. Number three, go ahead. You're on the air. You know, I was listening to you talk with a professor there, Rick. Yeah. And I'm I'm actually proud of you. You're talking right along like you're a political science person, too. <laughs> We're political junkies here on Fridays, number three. I, I suggest that maybe – Mike Hayes calls you someday, and you could get on his talk show. Oh, yeah. He, he could bring in the the, uh, the afternoon expert to talk politics with him uh, in the morning. He could bring you in. Maybe there's some promise for you yet. You, you know, know what I'm doing from 6 to 9 a.m., number three? I'm what? asleep. <laughs> <laughs> now you sound like a typical professor yeah, now, or, a, or a politician. Yeah, now I am a college professor. Chagoski, do you li- I don't know if you're a morning person, but do you, can you line up your classes? You know what? I'm not a, I'm not going to be very good at teaching people in the morning. I'm going to do all PM classes. <laughs> well, Rick, honestly, it's more of the students' preferences because we can have classes as early as 7:45 at UWL. Oh. But we need students to register for those classes. And oh, so, yeah. you know, even a morning person might be reluctant to do that, wondering if anyone would sign up. Well, that and, like, if you're teaching a class at 7.45 in the morning, I mean, first of all, all the, the, the students, I was going to say kids, but they're, they're mostly adults there. They're coming in in sweatpants, and they probably aren't even shout. They're probably just waking up and, and zombie walking to class. So you're probably not going to get the most fun class at 745. It's in your best interest to at least have after 10, I would say. Anything after 10 would be decent. From about 10 to noon, Rick, and this is just anecdotal, but from 10 to noon, I think that's when my students tend to be their sharpest. Yeah, you get like, wow, there's the kids are the kids. I did it again. The students are really like on it. They're asking questions. They're, they're coming up with theories on politics. They're almost themselves political junkies. The 745 class uh, crickets the whole time, I would guess. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's exactly why I don't teach those classes. Though I am a morning person. I am a morning person. Uh, in fact, Rick, uh, I did a TV interview at 5.30 a.m. So how about that? Wow, that's. Did you put makeup on? Did they make? They, it's a Zoom meeting, so I don't imagine. Now, you saw that video, and I, I don't have any of the details except one of the guys in the government turned himself into a cat, and then he was talking on a, on some kind of uh, official. Wasn't it? No, it was a courtroom. Was it a courtroom? And it was a lawyer that turned himself into a cat. Did you see this video? You had to. Have. It was the cat lawyer who had the fil- the cat filter on his Zoom call, and he couldn't figure out how to turn it off in this trial, in this sort of, like, boring, you know, forfeiture case in Texas. Yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about. When we when we test our government officials to see if they're competent, it can be drug tests, it could be, you know, it, it, we, we made fun of Donald Trump's uh, competency test where he, he's got to, you know, draw a volcano or whatever it was. What's a hippopotamus? Um, but like this could be one of the things. Okay, uh, turn you're you're a potato on Zoom right now, Senator Grassley. Turn yourself off. Make yourself back. Uh, turn yourself out of a potato back into a normal person and go. You got ten seconds, and then see if you can do it. So I taught all of last semester on Zoom, and I was never once a potato or a cat. So how about, how about your that students? That just shows you my tech savvy. Because man, if I'm in a student, and if I'm a student, and I like my prof- professor, I would imagine a lot of kids, a lot of students like you, and and you're probably 
uh, pretty laid back. How many potatoes and cats did you have in your Zoom classes? <laughs> they were so they were great on Zoom. Like a lot of students, though, don't like to turn on their camera, so that was kind of interesting. Okay, yeah. So you're just talking to black boxes. You think it's like a black? Yeah, that, yeah. That one I call day, it uh, like talking into the void. Yeah, and you don't even know if they're there, right? They're probably just recording yeah. that. Because uh, you can record those Zoom calls. Something Chuck Grassley also probably can't do is is where did that save? I don't even know. Uh, um, all right, so there we got two things. I want to talk about the. I know we have a mayor race coming up, and there's ten candidates running. But I do the impeachment thing. Um, it's funny because it's like eh, impeachment, whatever. We're only impeaching a president, no big deal. But um, we, I was talking with some friends about this, and you, and I honestly, I, I haven't read a whole ton about the impeachment, but just the fact that we've had two now. Congratulations, President Trump, on uh, being impeached twice. But um, the only person to ever do that. He, we, we call the Senate jury, and it's, it's, we think of it when we hear that, oh, the Senate is the jury, and we think, oh, it's a courtroom, and it's going to be like a criminal case, and we're going to convict this guy. And, but it's not, it's not that at all, right? Like it's, why, right, we shouldn't draw any parallels to a courtroom and what, what an impeachment trial is? Not at all, Rick. I mean, first of all, this is not a criminal proceeding, and there is no relationship between a criminal proceeding and impeachment. An impeachment is a political process, and the criteria and the process is laid out in the Constitution. So this is not criminal law we're talking about here. And secondly, as you mentioned, the jury, the senators... There was an interesting moment in the trial today where one of Trump's lawyers said, hey, you know, no one here likes to get primaried, right? Uh, no, one, no one would like to get a primary challenge. So that's something that normal jurors don't have to deal with, right? Like the threat of losing their job in the future if they don't vote a certain way. The Trump lawyer was not so subtly hinting at the possibility that Republicans who vote to convict President Trump could face a primary challenge from within the Republican Party down the road. Yeah, that's a little weird. Um, also, if this was like a, an actual courtroom and the jury wasn't filled with senators who are in on the alleged crime, they would we would have an impartial jury that isn't affiliated with this and maybe doesn't know anything about it, though that would be hard to find an actual jury if this was like a criminal case. But also, if we did this and this was on TV and we watched this, we would be like, wow, that guy has the worst lawyers I've ever seen. I've heard a couple of the, 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 the uh, whatever you want to call them, speeches by the lawyers. I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what this is about. Aren't we supposed to be talking about an impeachment and a Capitol riot, but the lawyers going on about being lost in Washington and um, I don't know, and just other weird stuff. It was really weird what those guys were saying. Yeah, Rick, on the first day of the trial, one of President Trump's lawyers, Bruce Castor, was widely panned by the press and by the Republican Party, members of the Republican Party, and reportedly by the president himself for this weird meandering opening statement that tried to butter up certain key senators and didn't really seem to go anywhere. I did think that the Trump's team was Trump's team was a lot more focused in their arguments today. And really, they're just focused on keeping the Republican Party unified and limiting the amount of defections. I think that people are looking at right around five as the magic number. Five as, you know, give or take a few as the number of Republican senators who might vote to convict. Of course, that doesn't even get you anywhere close to the 67 votes that are required to reach a conviction because... You know, if all 50 
Democrats vote with five Republicans, that still leaves you well shy of 67. Yeah, and then that's that's always like, why are we doing this? Because we're never going to get them impeached in the Senate. But there's a, there's like a principle here for doing this, right? I think the House Democrats are doing it to put this stuff on the record for the history books and to put this on the record for the American public. So I think it's fair to say that this is being tried in the court of public opinion just as much as it's being tried in the Senate. And, you know, because, frankly, not that many senators are persuadable. Maybe a couple of them are persuadable, but not nearly enough to swing the outcome of this trial. And also, if this was an actual courtroom, if you had your jury just not paying attention and just, I, I don't know, reading a book or weren't some of these, yeah. weren't some of the senators just really just checked out and pretending not to listen as if they're better than, you know, an impeachment trial? Yeah. And I actually, speaking of Chuck Grassley, apparently he smuggled in an iPad and had it in his desk and was like trying to sort of like secretly use his iPad during the trial, even though that wasn't allowed. So let's just say some senators don't seem to be paying close attention to what's happening. Yeah, the the funny thing there, too, is he couldn't turn it on. He didn't even know. He's like, <laughs> here, Chuck, I think you could sneak this thing in. What is this thing? Where's the words? I can't find it. Um, John's calling in. Uh, John, go ahead. You're on the air. Is this John? Uh, well, this is Frank. Oh, sorry, Frank. Cross, but, uh, yeah, that's what it says on the ID. But it's nice to talk to you, Rick. Uh, Professor Trugovsky, I hope I'm not off topic uh, uh, at all, but uh, let's, the, when it comes to the virus and uh, the government, you can't say that the government hasn't been uh, generous, be it state and federal, with the one-time payments and the unemployment compensation and everything like that. But what about property tax relief? Why hasn't that ever come up? Last time I checked, Central's open one day a week, and uh, my property taxes went up six or seven hundred dollars in Evers first year hasn't the political uh, class even brought that up or considered it all right I I am not an act, tax expert but th- thanks Frank for the call do you do you got any any route here Tragoski well I do think that that is relevant to the discussion about sales taxes that we were having earlier the poten- I mean the the argument in favor of the Evers proposal is that if you allow counties to raise the sales tax, then that would relieve some pressure on property taxes. And I don't know to what extent that's true, but that's at least the argument in favor of that proposal to take some relief, to take some pressure off of the property taxpayers and to have the sales tax carry more of the burden for local government expenses. Yeah, I mean, it's cool to, to think like, hey, how can we give some people some relief? We'll, we'll give property tax relief to all the people that own property. Well, um, uh, not everyone owns property. So what about the people that are renting? Hey, well, let's give the landlords all the property tax relief. And then they'll, you know, they'll trickle down that property tax relief to to the rent, they'll lower everyone's rent. I'm sure that'll happen. Well, I mean, at some point, it's like who's covering the the expenses of local government, right, Rick? And I mean, many of these mayor, mayor mayoral candidates in La Crosse have talked about the need to provide property tax relief or at least hold the line on property taxes, but that would involve making some tough decisions, right? And spending cuts are always popular in theory. They're always popular when you talk about spending cuts in general, but when you talk about the specific cuts, they suddenly get a lot less popular among the public and people start to get mad about them. So, you know, I I just think you can't 
promise to hold the line or cut property taxes and then do all these extra things. It just doesn't work that way. I don't know. I hear like eight or nine people uh, run for mayor right now just uh, t- t- talking about property taxes and just um, but it'll be interesting after Tuesday when we get down to 10 or when we get down from 10 to two and, and really be able to go, okay, how are you going to do it? How are you going to cut property taxes? Yeah, I do think that we need to press the final two candidates on this. Like if they will cut property taxes, how will they do that? If they are going to hold the line on property taxes, how are they going to do that? This seems to be a really key issue in this campaign. And honestly, we haven't gotten a whole lot of specifics out of this field. But I think that we're going to have to press the final two for some more specifics uh, in advance of the April election. That's UW Lacrosse uh, political science professor, Dr. Anthony Chagoski. And I will say, Chagoski, if you want to go listen, I talked to the mayor about this and I just said, Mayor, uh, the next candidate just wants $1,500 a year property taxes. How do we do it? And he said uh, there would be ma- need to be major changes at the state level. Um, so go listen, wisdomnews.com, go to podcast. But thanks a lot, Chagoski, for joining us. All right, that's all the time I got for today. Thanks, everyone. For-